Section 24 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19. Extension of Plebeian Rights from 449 to 390 B.C. Part 1. The laws of the Twelve Tables were not intended to be a reform of the Constitution. They referred to the private rights of the citizens alone, especially to the civil law. The Constitution of the Republic was not touched by them, and was left entirely what it had been before. But the violent commotions which accompanied the downfall of the decumviral legislators, and which at one time threatened a dissolution of the Commonwealth, involved a formal restoration of the old order of things, which was accompanied by a few slight modifications and new legal guarantees. In the first place, the annual consulship was re-established, but the functions of treasurer or paymaster, quaestor, which had hitherto been discharged by a nominee of the consul, were now entrusted to an annual officer elected by popular suffrage. By this means, a check was imposed on the disposal of the public money by the consul. The quaestor, though still acting under the authority of the consul and looked upon as his subordinate, had to superintend the military expenditure and to account for the disposal of booty taken in war. He had to lay his accounts before the Senate, the body which had the chief control of the public finances. The consulship was restored, subject to the old restrictions. The right of appeal from the consul's decisions to the popular assembly was guaranteed by a special enactment which provided that no magistrate whatever should be elected unrestrained by this safeguard of popular liberty. As by the decumviral legislation, the private rights of the plebeians and patricians had been equalized, the right of appeal was now probably extended to the plebeians. The tribuneship and idealship were also restored with their privilege of inviolability and the right of intercession. Special precautions were taken to secure the uninterrupted succession of tribunes, so that the people might never be in want of their legal protectors. Finally, a law passed by the consuls Valerius and Horatius acknowledged the plebeian assembly of tribes as a sovereign assembly of the Roman people. It laid down the rule that the whole Roman people should be legally bound by the decisions of the tribes. Whether this important law was an enactment entirely new in substance, or only the formal acknowledgment of an existing plebeian right, and as such part of the general restoration of the old constitution, we are not informed. The latter, however, seems the most probable hypothesis, for in reality, the plebeians must have been acknowledged as possessing the right of legally binding the whole Roman people by their decisions from the moment when the tribunes elected by them were invested with a public authority, to which the consuls themselves had to bow. The legislative sovereignty of the plebeian tribes was now extended more and more. It superseded gradually the legislation of the older Comitia Centuriata, which preserved only their rights of electing consuls, and afterwards the praetors and censors, the right of deciding on peace and war, and the supreme criminal legislation in cases of appeal. The assembly of tribes, on the other hand, became now the only engine for legislative enactments, and was even empowered to elect those inferior magistrates who were subsequently appointed, such as quaestors and aediles. 
Again, questions of foreign as well as domestic policy were henceforth submitted to the decision of the plebeian assembly of tribes, so that the centre of gravity which had originally lain in the patrician assembly of curies, and then in the mixed assembly of centuries, was finally shifted entirely to the plebeian comitia of tribes. But this change was not effected at once. It was the slow result of a gradual abolition of all political privileges attaching to the patrician body. When the old consular constitution was restored after the decumvirate, these privileges still existed entire, though the time was come when they were destined to fall one after another. First of all, the law against intermarriage between the two classes of citizens was abolished on the motion of a tribune of the people called Gaius Canuleus in 445 BC. This law, which seems to have caused so much heartburning and to have been a bone of contention in the second year of the Decumvirate, was really no advantage to the patricians, but on the contrary, a cause of weakness, as it prevented the aristocracy from gaining strength by the infusion of new blood. It can have been nothing but a narrow-minded religious scruple which opposed mixed marriages under the impression that only a certain number of families enjoyed that special favor of the gods which secured divine protection to the state administered by them, that they alone could approach the gods by augury and possess the auspicia, be as it were the mediators between gods and men, a priesthood by birth, propagated only by purity of blood and intermarriage among themselves alone. How much these religious scruples were affected and supported by self-interest, we have no internal evidence to decide. But it is not at all improbable that they were strengthened by the fact that political power and material advantages were bound up with the exclusive religious sanctity claimed by the patrician houses. This exclusive possession of political power by the patricians was the tower of strength against which the plebeians henceforth directed their attacks. Hitherto, as we have seen, they had only claimed equality of private rights and protection from wrong. They had obtained the latter in their tribunes, and the former in the decumviral legislation to which the Canulean law of marriage must be looked upon as an appendix. In the very same year, 445 B.C., the tribunes brought in a bill to sanction the election of plebeian consuls. The patricians resisted with all their might, but they were only able to alter the form and not the substance of the proposal. They objected to plebeian consuls, but consented to the election of chief magistrates with consular power, to be called military tribunes, three in number, and eligible promiscuously from the two orders of citizens. What they proposed to gain or did gain by this change in title is not quite clear. They cannot have been so childish as to fight a political battle for a mere name. It is probable that the military tribunes were considered in rank inferior to the consuls, and that they lacked some of the attributes and rights which the consuls possessed. At the same time, the increase in the number of chief magistrates implies that one of the three was intended to discharge the duties of chief judge, for which afterwards a praetor was elected, and that the patricians reserved to themselves the right of filling this office with one of their own number. The other two military tribunes, whose principal duty was the command of the army, 
were to be elected indiscriminately from patricians and plebeians and the important reservation was made that the government of the republic should be entrusted to consuls whenever the senate should deem it advisable the consuls of course could be taken from the patrician body alone and it was therefore left to the decision of the senate whether the new law was to be applied or not even with these restrictions and modifications the apparent gain of the plebeians was very important but unfortunately for them their opponents did not act with good faith and succeeded in making their concessions almost nugatory as the law now stood the policy of the patricians was directed to two points first to obtain a decree of the senate for the election of consuls and if this could not be carried to make such good use of their influence in the comitia of centuries as to secure the election of patricians for the office of military tribunes to the exclusion of plebeians for a considerable time the patricians were entirely successful during the period between 444 bc and 409 bc that is for 35 years they managed to prevent the election of military tribunes and to substitute consuls not less than twenty times and up to the year four hundred b c that is for twenty-three years in which they were compelled to yield to the demands of the plebeians and to allow the election of military tribunes instead of consuls they frustrated the success of plebeian candidates for nearly half a century therefore from four forty five to four hundred the victory which the plebeians had gained turned out to be really barren of results whether consuls or military tribunes directed the government they were always taken from the patrician order although the law sanctioned the election of plebeians at least for one of these offices the explanation of this curious circumstance seems at first sight very difficult how could the plebeians rest satisfied with an apparent victory with a mere change in the law without following it up practically by enforcing the law if they were strong enough to compel their opponents to surrender a privilege after a stubborn contest could they lack the strength to appropriate the spoils the truth seems to be that a reaction took place after the great constitutional struggle in the time of the decemvirate and that the equalization and codification of the law which were effected at that period removed many of the grievances of the plebeian body moreover the party in possession of the government with all the influence of nobility wealth political experience and organization was not easily beaten at elections if it chose to exert the whole of its power this the roman patricians were determined to do in the senate they were all powerful in fact the senate was as yet unpolluted by plebeian members in the comitia centuriata they must have possessed a working majority either by their own votes or by the votes of their dependents and adherents if these could not be trusted the patricians had it in their power to influence the elections through a presiding magistrate of their own order who might refuse to accept the votes of an opposition candidate or might adjourn the election if he feared it would go against his party he might even refuse to declare a plebeian duly elected on the pretext of some irregularity the auspices might be made use of as a political weapon the gods might declare through the mouth of a patrician augur that they were not satisfied with the result of an election the senate might withhold the patrum auctoritas or finally 
the patrician Comitia Curiata might object to confer upon a plebeian magistrate the imperium, without which he could not lawfully take the command of the army. Such a copious store of political weapons explains sufficiently the continued ascendancy of the patrician body, in spite of the temporary success gained by the plebeians at a time of great political excitement. End of section 24